are you doing, Jeff? Oh, hey, honey. Just trying the ukulele. I saw a tutorial on YouTube, and I think I'm getting the hang of it. Uh, Jeff, what are you doing to the furnace? Just performing some monthly maintenance. I saw a video on the YouTube. Is that gas I smell? Nah. Can you pass me those matches? Uh, Jeff... Swapping out the engine, babe. Thanks, YouTube. Learning, personal disruption, and the S-curve. It's what we're talking about today on this episode of the Insights at Work podcast. Jeff, I think this time you might have bitten off more than you can chew. Don't be silly. I've got this one. Now, just lean back and relax. That freezing should be kicking in any second now. Let's dive in. is human, why it can be insatiable in some and non-existent in others. In my case, I've been called a lot of names, not all of them complimentary, but two that have stuck with me that I can mention on the podcast are polymath and philomath. A polymath is someone who's obtained a great deal of knowledge detailed from a wide variety of topics. A philomath is someone who enjoys learning and studying. Well, I think a lot of our listeners are both, especially when it comes to the wide-ranging area of HR. And that's why I've been so looking forward to chatting with today's guest. Whitney Johnson is the CEO of Disruption Advisors, host of the Disrupt Yourself podcast, and has been named as one of the leading business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. She's an award-winning author, keynote speaker, and an executive coach. I just wrapped up reading her latest book, Smart Growth, and we're so lucky to have her here with us today. Welcome to the Insights at Work podcast, disruption and learning expert, Whitney Johnson. Jeff, I am so happy to be here. Whitney, you focus on the theme of disrupting yourself, disrupting oneself. And I'm thinking to disrupt oneself, you need to introduce something new into your lifestyle. Try something new, like egg salad for me when I hit the early age of 38. And Whitney, let me tell you, it was delicious, and I've never looked back. Whitney, fill me in on why it's so important to introduce that element of disruption in one's professional and personal life. Mm. Well, disruption is actually deliberate self-innovation. So it's a mechanism by which you make progress. You step back from who you are into who you want to be. And so when you're self-disrupting, you're basically making the decision to make progress. Whitney, why despite the desire to learn, can it be so difficult to start something new and stick with it. So whenever we start something new, we're effectively at the launch point of a new S-curve. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But basically what's happening in our brain is that we're running this predictive model, this hypothesis of what is it going to take for me to be successful. And when we're doing something new, we're making lots and lots of predictions, many of which are inaccurate. And so our dopamine, this chemical messenger of delight, is dropping, it's de-delighting. And so we have this experience of it's we're, we're not enjoying ourselves. We also are having, uh, having to map new territory. So it's cognitively and emotionally taxing. 
And our identity is in flux. We're no longer who we were. We're not yet who we're going to be. And so the experience that you have at the launch point of the curve is it's awkward and uncomfortable and gangly and, and overwhelming. And so it's very, very difficult for us to want to start something new. What I think is so interesting is you talk about mapping new territory. And in your book, you also talk about uh, developing new neurons and mm -hmm. that it requires more effort to work on something that you don't really enjoy than something that you do enjoy. Mm -hmm. And at ADP, we have a process. It's the standout check-in. We do it once a week. And we talk about, we ask our employees, what did you love this week? And what did you loathe this week? Because we want employees focusing on stuff they enjoy. Because we know that if you work on something you enjoy, you're going to become more successful at it than if you're working on something you loathe. Yeah, so, I love that. And this is this is Marcus Buckingham's work, correct? It is Marcus Buckingham's work. All right. So yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, and this is building on his, his how he talked about this, because he has such a wonderful way of describing the world, is that wherever you have a lot of neurons... Um, it, you've, you, well, let's talk about, you know, a forest, wherever you have a lot of trees, it's easier to have a lot more trees. And it's the same with what's going on in your brain, wherever you have a lot of neurons, it's easier to have a lot more neurons, whatever you're strong, in, it's easier to, to be more strong. And so it's the same with whatever you love doing you're naturally going to do more of that. And so what's exciting about this is when you work on things that you love, not that you loathe, then you're going to get increasingly better at it. You're going to get idiosyncratically and exponentially better at something that you love doing. Do you know what your like key, key strengths are? Have you, have you taken that survey? I have. The one that I remember off the top of my head is I'm a relator. Interesting, because I would agree. I would think that I just wrote down what I thought you were. And that relator, it's what we call a connector. And that's what I am. I'm a connector teacher. I think you would be a connector teacher. I think you would be a stimulator. You'd also be a creator. But I think your key strengths would be being that connector. That's so fun that you predicted that. Very fun. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I just wrote down anything really on this piece of paper. But I did write down connector. <laughs> so Whitney, tell me about the S-curve. All right. So, so the S curve was popularized by Everett Rogers back to the 1960s, and he used it to help you figure out how do groups change over time. And um, we use the S curve at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I co-founded with Clay Christensen to um, figure out how quickly an innovation would be adopted. I then had this insight, this aha, that we could use the S-curve to help us understand not how groups change, but how individuals change. And that every time you start something new, you are on a new S-curve. And so um, it, it answers a number of questions for you. It helps you understand why is it hard to start something new, which you just asked me. Why once you do start, does it become easy? And why can you be very, very, very good at something and feel like you can no longer keep doing it? And there are basically three major parts of the S-curve. There's the launch point, there's the sweet spot, and there's mastery. And if we go back to that predictive model that I mentioned a few minutes ago, at the launch point where you're making those predictions, um, many of which are inaccurate, the dopamine is dropping. And so the experience that you're having, even though the growth is happening, because it is actually happening very rapidly, is that you experience it at slow. So the emotional experience of growth is slow. But then once you hit that tipping point, which Malcolm Gladwell popularized, and you move into the sweet spot, the experience that you have is 
The dopamine is now spiking, feels good. It's exhilarating. It's that steep, slick back of the curve. From a self-determination theory standpoint, you're feeling competent, autonomous, related. So I like to use the acronym CAR to describe that experience. Um, And then when you hit mastery, what's happening is your growth is no longer fast and feels fast. It's actually because you figured out whatever it is you meant to do in that role, you wanted to learn five songs on the ukulele and you did, you're no longer growing. You're no longer getting that dopamine. So the experience that you have is time is passing quickly, but growth is now slow. And so what the S curve does is it allows you to say slow and then fast and slow is a very simple model of how you grow. And when you understand what that growth looks like, that emotional arc of growth, it increases your capacity to grow. You talk about the sweet spot of the S curve, mm-hmm. and that reminded me of a term I love using all of the time. And it's a term that I heard from Mike Lipkin, who's a performance coach, and he's been on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. And his term is celebrate the struggle. So yes, things might be tough, but that's when you learn and you're going to get the most from that experience. Absolutely. I mean, to, to build on what he said, that the struggle means that you are growing. Um, the struggle means that you're skirmishing with your, 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 you know, the price of a new self is your old self. You have to disrupt yourself. And it's in that struggle that you're having of you're saying, I am no longer going to be who I was. And so if we can, in that moment where we're feeling awkward and uncomfortable, say, okay, situation normal this is a signal to me that I'm doing something new. If you celebrate it, you actually get a little bit of dopamine that allows you to persevere and stay in that place of newness and, and, and say, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm growing. And so I know I feel uncomfortable, but this is signaling to me that I'm making progress. And so I love that idea of celebrate the struggle. And, and that's how I would interpret what he said. So before I take on a new S-curve, what are the questions that I should be asking myself? And can I take on multiple S-curves at the same time? Mm. All right. That is a big question. So let me answer the first part and then I'll go to the second part. So some of the questions that you can ask yourself are, um, this is what I call the explorer phase. And is, you know, can I learn and grow? Can I add value? Um, Will it be fun? There's some bigger questions you can ask yourself is, do I believe that I can be successful? And you don't need to entirely believe, you need to just believe that you can believe that you can be successful. You also want to ask yourself, um, is this this familiar enough, um, but not too familiar, right? So there's this balance, because if it's too novel, then you won't do it. But if it's too familiar, it's not worth doing. Does it align with your why? Does it align with your identity? For example, if you're thinking, I want to change religions. I want to go from being Christian to Jewish. Well, if you've been Christian for, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten generations, and you decide that you're going to become Jewish, that's a big identity shift. And you may decide you want to do it, but there is going to be a real emotional cost to that. And is it worth it to you to do that? So it allows you to think about that. But those are all questions that you can ask yourself and say, all right, I'm going to explore this. And if most of these questions I'm answering are yes, then what you do, you're still on the launch point, but you move to this collector phase of, can I get the resources that I need? I've decided that I want to do it, but is there a person S-curve fit? Is the ecosystem going to support me in doing this? And I'm going to give you kind of an outlandish example, which is I want to be a UFC fighter, right? I want to go do that. 
I might have this check off all the boxes. Yes, it's worth it to me. Yes, it's in line with my identity, which you're laughing because it's not. But let's assume that it is. Now I have to decide, can I get the resources from the ecosystem? Do I have the money? Can I find the trainers? Do I have the time? Will the ecosystem allow this to be possible? And so if those pieces are in place, then I'm going to be able to put that together, stay on this S curve and have the conditions that will allow me to move into the sweet spot of that curve. So how do we stay on that S curve? So once we've made some considerable progress, sometimes Mm -hmm. we tire of what we're doing and we can feel Mm -hmm. like we no longer want to do it. What does it take to gain and maintain that momentum on the S curve? Yeah. Okay. And I'll come back to the portfolio in a minute because I don't want to leave everybody with an open loop, but let's, okay. So now we're on this, the launch point you've, you've explored, you've collected the data. You're like, yes, this is the S curve for me. You're now moving into the sweet spot. The thing you want to be aware of in the sweet spot, you're going fast. It feels fast. What's happening here is that you are so competent. You're getting lots and lots and lots and lots of opportunity. And so what you need in this place is focus. This ability to increasingly prioritize, to be able to say to your manager, hey, I know that there's these 10 things you want me to do. And I'm so glad that you think I'm good at this, but I need to be able to push back and prioritize and let's be strategic about this. And you want to really focus on what's working. We know from a neuroscience perspective, when you focus on what's working, you're going to get more of that because our brain filters for what we're paying attention to. And so track what's working so you can replicate it and do more of it in the future. And perhaps most importantly, when people are doing really good work, sometimes we say to ourselves, they're doing a great job, I'll leave them be. They're not a problem child. They're not taking our attention. You want to focus on them and appreciate the work that they're doing. And so when you're in the sweet spot, the thing you really want to think about is focus, helping people focus, but also focusing on the people who are in that sweet spot. If you're a manager, how many, let's say you have 10 people that report to you, how many should be at the beginning of the S curve if they're Mm. working on projects in the middle at the end of the S curve? Like what's a good ratio or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, um, so the, the percentages are going to differ depending on number one, what is it that you're trying to get done? Number two is how large is your organization? Are you a startup? Are you a well-established company like ADP? So there's, there's some nuance, but a good baseline is to use the standard bell curve distribution. And say to yourself, all right, so if I start with this idea of I want to have about 60% of my people in the sweet spot, why? Because these are people, they're not all the way up the mountain, but they're not at the base of the mountain. So they've got this perspective of, okay, I can ask questions like, why do we do it like this, which opens the door to innovation, but I've also got the competence to execute against these ideas. I don't want more than 20% of my people to launch point. Why? Because on the one hand, they can ask those questions that will lead to innovation, whether it's around processes or products or people. They also need a lot of support at the launch point. Remember, this is that awkward gangly phase. So they're going to need training. They're going to need, they're going to need coaching. They're going to need encouragement. So you don't want more than 20% of your people there. And then in mastery, you also want to have about 20% of your people or no more than Why do you want 20%? Because 
they are the institutional memory. They are the people who can say, here's why we do it this way. And it gives you this anchoring mechanism within the team. But you also don't want more than 20%. Because if you think of this from a workforce perspective, at some point, they are going to go need to jump to a new S-curve. And if you've got all of your people in mastery who all at the same time become bored and unmotivated, you've got a cliff. And you, you, you lose your institutional memory, you lose your pipeline. So you need them because they're going to help you execute. But you also need to understand that from a succession planning perspective, from an individual, they will need to jump to a new S-curve. So good baseline starting point is 60% in the sweet spot, 20% at the launch point, and 20% mastery. And I think this is a good time to close the loop on that question you asked me of the portfolio of S-curves. So we're talking about this right now of managing your team as a portfolio curves, but it's very much a fractal because you as an individual have a portfolio of S curves. And so you can also use this as you're thinking about your life at any given time. For example, um, if you say to yourself, from a project management perspective, from a neuroscience perspective, you can really only handle three or four things at a time. What that means is, probably want to have two S curves in the sweet spot. You want to have one where you're in mastery and you want to have one when you're at the launch point. Now that's not always possible. Sometimes people make the decision to start a new job, have a child and move to a new city all at once, which is a lot of launch points. But then you can say to yourself, all right, well, what that means is I'm going to need support. It might mean more training. It might mean more help. But when you can think of your, your life as a portfolio of S curves, that allows you to say, oh, wow, I'm actually in mastery in all parts of my life, probably time for me to do some launch point things so that I can continue to grow because growth, again, back to the neuroscience, growth is our default setting. Whitney, what you're saying is that you want about 60 people hitting that S spot. Ooh, I like the S spot though. Ooh, I gotta, ooh, gotta think about that one. Whitney, nobody likes to climb their S curve alone. We need guidance and support from our environment. As HR professionals, how can we encourage disruption in the workplace? Mm. All right. So the way I would think about this is we, we've talked about the S-curve and how we all are wired to grow. And when we get into mastery, when we get to that upper plateau of the S-curve, we're no longer learning and we're no longer growing. And so what that means is that um, people will sometimes say, well, I've paid my dues, you know, I just want to coast, but they don't actually want to coast. Like we think we do, but we don't actually want to. And so one of the things that you can say to people if they're reluctant to want to do something to, new is to say, you've now got this latent innovative capacity. You've got this capacity that is going unleashed. It's going unused. And you have been such a strong contributor. We want you to continue to contribute. So let's let's talk about what else are you going to do so that you're challenged because if you're growing, then ADP, for example, is growing. And, and one, um, let me give you an example of that to, to illustrate how that conversation can go. So I interviewed on our podcast several years ago, um, a, a Canadian gentleman, um, his name is Patrick Bichette, and he had, um, he had been the CFO at Google. At Google. Um, prior to being the CFO at Google, he'd had, he'd been at Bell Canada. He'd had a number of operations roles and was in many respects at the top of his S curve from an operations perspective and certainly a CFO. And so he interviews at Google and at the time, Eric Schmidt, the C CEO says, 
Patrick, we've got a problem. Because if I hire you in very short order, you know, once you've kind of mapped out how to do the job within the context of Google, you're going to be bored. So here's what we're going to do. Every time you start to feel like, got this dialed in, getting a little bit bored, I want you to come talk to me. So basically, you're top of the S curve, come talk to me. So that's what he did. So he started, he was a CFO. But then 12, 18 months later, had a conversation. And every 12 to 18 months, he had an, another conversation. And over time, he added um, people, he added real estate, he added Google Fiber, he added their nonprofit, which allowed him that even though when he started at the organization from a domain expertise perspective, he was at the top of his curve, because he kept jumping curves, he was able to stay in role at Google for seven years. And so that's what that can look like um, inside of an organization where you allow people to jump to new curves. Now, what's interesting about that, and we also do a lot of work with Kraft Heinz around this, is sometimes you need the person to stay in that role. Like they needed him to be the CFO. We had a, a person at Kraft Heinz who's the treasurer. We They needed Yang Shu to stay in that treasurer role. But again, back to this idea of portfolio of S-curves. Yeah, we need you to stay here. We need you to anchor here. We need you to build people into this role here, but we're going to give you launch point opportunities to add to your portfolio so that overall you stay in the S spot, as you just called it, of the curve. And so you're always keeping that individual engaged. Mm -hmm. Things are refreshing to them. They're learning new skills. So yeah, I know that's super interesting. One thing that, that I do is I like to volunteer. And I just wrapped up some time on a not-for-profit, a housing community, mental health charity. And what I focused in my time there was everything but marketing and communications. So it was finance. It was HR. It was something that I would be, it was policy. It was all about government relations, things that was new to me where I would you know, learn about something new. I'd build those skills. And then I'd also be working with people who were experts in that field and I'd learn from them too. So oh. I was always really engaged and things were really refreshing for me. Oh, Jeff, I love that. And what a great mechanism for jumping to the launch point of new S-curves is to, to go volunteer so you don't feel bad about the fact that you're not good at something like it allows you to feel uh, you're you're lowering the stakes because you're volunteering your time and then like you said you're getting to work with other people who are expert what a what a brilliant way to to dabble in new s curves well there's tons of stuff that i'm terrible at as as with as are we all right <laughs> if if we're growing right if we're not growing there are going to be lots of things that we're good at but then we're not growing so I had, uh, we had a gold medal uh, Olympian on the, on the podcast. And one thing that always sticks with me with what he said was, don't be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. You're not really failing. But when you stop trying, that's when you're going to start failing. That's right. So you write a lot about the importance of I am statements mm -hmm. in the collector phase of the S-curve. I am a writer. I am a runner. Now, we've talked a lot on the podcast about conquering imposter syndrome and I think that your approach on these I am statements, it really resonates with me. So can you fill our listeners in on the importance of the I am statement? Yeah. So this is um, built on some research of Gregory Walton out of Stanford. And he, he talks about psychologically precise interventions. Um, and it, the idea is you're, 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 the aim is to alter how people are thinking about themselves in these sort of micro doses 
um, that help them flourish. And so what he found is that when, um, when voters describe themselves as I am a voter versus I vote, there was an 11 percentage increase in turnout. So by merely saying I am and, and getting your identity involved in this, in the equation, the voter turnout increased. So that was interesting to me. Love that empirical evidence. So you now have science saying I am statements work. And if anybody listening to this is like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I'm skeptical. All you have to do is this. Think about someone you love. Think about when they said to you, I'm dumb or I'm ugly. Think about how you felt when you heard them say that about themselves. It, it is physically painful to you. And so if you know that, how physically painful it is, then you can flip it because you know that there is some power in that. If you can get them to say, I am smart. I am beautiful, I am capable, everything changes. And so that to me is the power of those I am statements. If we will use those, if we will harness the science, the spiritual element of it, and just sort of the, the um, experiential piece of using those statements, um, they really will make a difference in, in creating the conditions where you believe that you can believe that you're successful along an S-curve. We've been talking a lot lately in the office and, and I've seen, we, we're having this conversation all the time and it is attributes versus skills. Mm -hmm. So when you're hiring somebody, what's more important? What camp are you in Whitney? Attributes or skills? Well, it's a both and. Because if you need someone to be a rocket scientist, um, you know, I can't just go hire me and have me be able to be successful in the next year. So, so there's, I would say attributes or excuse me, skills, there's some table stakes around skills, but when it comes to someone actually being able to move up the S curve in terms of all that a royal role requires of them in turn, which almost always involves working with other people, attributes. So skills are, are, are necessary, but they are not sufficient. And the thing that's always going to tip it it's going to make the difference between someone who contributes in a really meaningful way. It's always going to come back to attributes. So one of my favorite things about the book is that you <laughs> provide a ton of real life examples. You interviewed business leaders pre-pandemic and during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's a super, very unique time in our business culture. Were there any attributes that were consistent? Was there any one person who was like super impactful and left this amazing impression on you? Oh, that's such a hard question. Is there a story that you want me to tell or should I just choose one? Pick your favorite. Okay. Well, it's like asking me to pick my favorite child, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you a story that I think I love and I think it's relevant to the conversation that we're having. And also, he's Canadian. So, Marco Tricocci, he was hired um, as the CIO, so the Chief Information Officer at Four Seasons, which is a hotel chain that many of us love and have maybe stayed at once or twice in our lives if we're lucky. If we're lucky. Yeah, if we're lucky. Well, what I loved about this story is that Marco was very much mid-career. He's hired as a CIO. 
And as many of us do, when we're at the launch point of a curve, we go in and we want to have an impact. I want to get stuff done today. And um, his boss said to him, I don't want you to do that. What I want you to do is I want you to spend six months and I want you to get the lay of the land. So again, thinking about this S curve and mapping the territory, I want you to figure out who are all your stakeholders what do they need? What jobs are they trying to get done? I want you to really think about and learn and allow yourself not to perform, but to be in this place of learning. I want you to take six months to do that. And after six months, then you can tell me what it is you want to get done. And the reason I think this is so powerful is that when we're at the launch point, we're in such a place of wanting to prove that we are going to be useful that we overlook that time period of really needing to get to know the people that we're going to climb that mountain with. And so that's why it was impactful for me because he went on to do this tremendous transformation of their systems inside of, uh, inside of Four Seasons. And I believe it's because, number one, his boss gave him the luxury, but I would say the necessity of that time to be at the launch point and map things out and because he was willing to take that. And so to me, I think that is so, so valuable is, are we willing to allow people to truly be at the launch point of the curve? And are we willing to allow ourselves to be at the launch point and not be so uncomfortable that we get impatient, that we try to move into the sweet spot before we're ready? And so to me, that's a really practical, useful story of a business leader very much mid-career but taking that time to be at the launch point. Awesome. Whitney, is there anything impactful that we haven't covered today? Sometimes people ask the question, we have a culture that's somewhat toxic. What, what do we do? Or we have a toxic employee. And there could be a lot of different reasons for that. But something that I would like to encourage you all to consider is that sometimes, sometimes people can be toxic because they're in mastery. They're at the top of their curve. And they may be very much ready to do something new, but they're afraid to do something new because it's terrifying to do something new. And so when you have people that are toxic, consider that. Maybe it's just that they need you to push them to do something new, either on your team, on another team or another organization, um, to help them grow. Um, it may also be that they are not only afraid, but, well, because they're afraid, they're toxic because they're saying, I need to do something new. They see other people around them growing and developing. They don't have quite the courage to do that. And so they're kind of kicking other people off the mountain. And so it's just something that I would like you to consider when you are struggling with someone who might be toxic, consider the possibility, there may be other things going on, but consider the possibility is that they just are ready to grow and they don't quite know how to grow and they're, or they're afraid. And if maybe if you can play with that a little bit, it might be something that allows them to reset because if they're toxic and they're still there, it's because at some point they were really a high performer. And so this might be something that you can do to reignite their growth and reignite their ability to connect with the team so that they can help the team grow and, and move up that S-curve mountain together. Awesome story. Great advice. Whitney, at the end of each podcast, <laughs> I love to ask our guest 
a list of their favorites and firsts. Are you ready? I am ready. Whitney Johnson, what was your first job? My first job was um, the summer after my senior year in high school. I worked at a restaurant as a cashier in, called the Burger Pit in California. Whitney Johnson, who is your favorite child? <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have a favorite daughter and a favorite son. I'm assuming you have one of each. Yes, I do. What was your first car? My first car was a Datsun. It was a royal blue and it was a stick shift. And my father did not enjoy teaching me how to drive a stick shift, but to this day, I can still drive a stick shift. What's the first concert you went to? James Taylor. Oh, cool. It was very fun. What is your favorite piece of advice that you give to young professionals just starting out? Mm. That is easy. I'm going to give two pieces of advice. Initiative, 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 and find ways. If you can surprise and delight the people you are working with, you will be successful. The theory, the strategy, the equation of under-promise and over-deliver. Correct. Whitney, it has been just an absolute pleasure having you on the Insights at Work podcast. Jeff, thank you for having me. Thank you for just a, a delightful conversation. And with that, it looks like we've run out of racetrack. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit from it as well. If you find the Insights at Work podcast worthy, please go on to iTunes and give us a cool rating with a nice review. We certainly appreciate it. And if there's something that you would like me to discuss around this big world of HR and all things business, give me a shout. You know how to reach me on social media or through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay healthy and be kind. We'll see you soon on the next episode of the Insights at Work podcast.